First Kings 22. So my question, if it's necessary to really have three weeks to go through First Kings 22, those people have never met me. But we're going to finish it up tonight, First Kings chapter 22. Remember, the whole theme of First Kings is covenants and character, looking at you know, God's covenant with the nation of Israel, with His people, and how He's faithful to it, His character, how it never changes. But then, of course, His people, some of them are faithful, some of them aren't. Some of them have good character, some of them don't. And we've been hanging out for the last, probably since the start of the year, with someone who does not have good character, King Ahab, which means we've, since January, we've been solely focused on the the northern kingdom. Well, the end of 1 Kings uh, comes with a short swap back to the southern kingdom uh, to summarize the reign of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and then it goes back to the north and summarizes very briefly the reign of Ahab's son, Ahaziah, who took over the north after Ahab's death. And while these two summaries are short, they're, they're almost kind of an anticlimactic ending to the book, there is a reason, though, the reader places them side by side like this, because when we examine Ahab's life in the aftermath of his death, One of these kings learned from their mistakes, while the other one stubbornly set his face to stay the course. And so these summaries show the importance of learning the hard lessons that God seeks to teach us instead of continuing to blunder down the same disastrous roads. So 1 Kings 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. It says in verse 41, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shilhi. While the northern kingdom had four regime changes by this time, the line of David remained intact in the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is David's descendant. But despite this continuity, Asa and his son Jehoshaphat were the only good kings that Judah had had up to this point. Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son was, said he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then his son, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Asa and Jehoshaphat are righteous kings, but we also know that Asa ended up backsliding in his old age. But his son Jehoshaphat has a different story. Um, he witnessed his father's backsliding and the effect it had on the nation. If you don't remember from when we went back to Asa's life, Jehoshaphat had to actually co-reign with his father for the last three years because his father was too sick to walk and too proud to ask God for help. And so Jehoshaphat determined to be a better king than his father, even though his dad was a good king. But he determined to focus on finishing stronger than he started, to learn the lessons, the hard lessons sometimes from the mistakes he made, instead of what happened with Asa as he grew bitter at God when God pointed out those mistakes. Many people in the Bible, they start well by seeking God and living according to His way of doing things, His law, but few in the Bible finish well. Often, folks become proud or selfish or negligent. And so, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on how important it is to finish well, to endure to the end. So, We will definitely see more of Jehoshaphat's story when we study the book of Chronicles. We're going to see that he makes some mistakes, and some of them are foolish mistakes that put him and his kingdom at great risk. Some of them are repeat mistakes. But in the end, Jehoshaphat does learn his lesson, and he finishes well. And so this brings up a really important point before we really dive into these verses, uh, which is, where are you at spiritually right now? Are you closer to Jesus now, or were you closer to the Lord in the past? You know, are you learning from your mistakes? 
Are you receiving God's correction, and, and are you growing so you can endure to the end? Or are you slowly hardening your heart? Are you trusting more and more in yourself and, and your experience and your accomplishments, or even your enjoyment of your accomplishments? Sometimes prosperity can be one of the most dangerous things we experience. Does simple faith and obedience seem a bit too simple to you these days? Of course, the best life is alike like Joseph's, like one where you just always walk with the Lord. Like you look at Joseph and you almost think this guy's unreal because it's like, did he never have any struggles? He did. You know, you read Daniel, like did this guy have any struggles? I'm sure he did too. But Joseph and Daniel are, are men, when we read about them, they just walk with the Lord their whole life. That's the best testimony, of course. But if it's too late for that testimony, which is the case for most of us, we've had our backslidings or we we had a period of our life when we didn't know the Lord. Well, if that's the case, and the choice is to be a Samson or a Jacob, I'm going to choose Jacob every time. You see, Samson started well, but he resisted God's correction more and more and more until it cost him everything. Jacob started off a mess, but he ended up close to the Lord. One of the coolest scriptures, in my opinion, is right before Jacob dies, it mentioned that he worshiped on his staff. What's the reason Jacob needed the staff? because he couldn't walk correctly, because he fought God tooth and nail, and God took out his hip. That staff was the evidence of God's discipline in his early life of fighting God, but he worshiped on it at the very end. He finished well. So, verse 43, let's dig in. So it gives us the first 41 and 42 just tells them how long he reigned, you know, his mom. These are, uh, it's like a formulaic thing that the writer uses here. But then in verse 43, it says, gets into what he did. It says, and he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away for the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. And Josephat made peace with the king of Israel. So here we get a summary of his character, Stratra, for the good things, and it goes to some of the failures. It mentions, first off, that he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. If you want to read about that, well, let's go. Let's look at 1 Kings 15 and look at Asa's testimony again. 1 Kings 15, just a few chapters to the left. 1 Kings 15, verse 11 tells us what Asa did right. It says, and Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like David, his father. He was a man after God's heart. He took away the Sodomites out of the land. He removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Also, Maacah, his mother, uh, the queen mother, even he removed her, he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect, loyal, dedicated with the Lord all his days. And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord, silver and gold and vessels. So Jehoshaphat was similar. He was dedicated to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He was faithful. He, he, it, when he died, the kingdom was less idolatrous than when he started. So these were and less immoral than when he started. So the idea here is when we look at Asa's testimony, we say, well, what kind of guy was Jehoshaphat? What kind of king was he? Well, worshiping God was important to him. Obeying God was important to him. But then the writer here says that where he was different from his dad is that finishing well was important to him. Look at what it says. He walked in the, and he walked in the ways of Asa's father, but then there's a semicolon that says he turned not aside from doing it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
Literally, that phrase turned on a sign means he never changed direction from that path, unlike dad, who got kind of proud at the end. Instead, he did the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. What is right? It means the right thing. And in the eyes of the Lord, it means what was acceptable and what brought God pleasure. You know, they say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and, and to some degree that's true. There are songs I love, and other people might listen to them and go, that's awful. We all have different tastes, but can I assure you that what pleases God is not about taste. What pleases Him has nothing to do with His taste. It's not about how God just has different tastes than me. No, not at all. For God, what pleases Him is about, it's about what's right. It's about what's right. And when we do the right thing, it brings God pleasure. I want what I do to bring God pleasure, don't you? Well, the only way to do that is to be doing the right things. First and foremost, that means repenting of my sins and placing my faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verses 29 and 30, when… I'm actually thinking that might be the wrong chapter because… Let me see. No, that's right. This is on Mars Hill. And he's explaining, for as much then, Acts 17, 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices. And the times of this ignorance, that idolatry, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So the first way that we please the Lord is by repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Christ, right? Obeying the gospel. But then secondly, it means yielding to the work He wants to do in my life to change me and make me more like Christ. And that's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. We kind of summed it up with Micah 6, 6 through 8. In Micah chapter 6, verse, verses 6 and 7, uh, Micah the prophet asks the question, is, is this what God's after? Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Like, what's God looking for? What shall I come to offer my worship and my life to Him? Is it, shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, is that what God's after? Later on, earlier on, the psalmist would say, burnt offering and sacrifice you don't desire. It's not that those things weren't pleasing to the Lord, but the things in and of themselves, without a heart that was recognizing what they meant, they were just rituals then. And so the idea was, is what God was really after is for the relational aspect, which is why those burnt offerings could never rescue us, why we needed that they were, they were a shadow pointing to the substance, which was Christ and His sacrifice. So instead, Micah says, these are not the things you're looking for. It's not, like, it's not like if you brought, you know, 999 rams to the Lord, he's like, well, that'd been great if you brought one more. No, Micah says, he has showed you. This is not a new idea, not new revelation. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God's after, to yield to the work He's trying to do in my life to make me more like Him, to draw near to Him, and the promise that when we do so, He draws near to us. Now, this was Jehoshaphat. That's how he lived. But it says here, nevertheless, so we had the good things, now we've got the failures, nevertheless. Uh, and you know, one can please the Lord even though you still have failures. You know that, right? You can please the Lord even though you have failures in your life. 
So for Jehoshaphat, he pleased the Lord to the very end. Nevertheless, the writer mentions here, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burnt incense yet still in high places. Now, what are the high places? We've been talking about this quite a bit in 1 Kings, but remember the pagans believed that their gods dwelt in the sky for the most part. Some of them, they believed dwelt in the sea or in the underworld, but for the most part, they thought they dwelt in the sky somewhere. And so, they would construct many of their pagan worship sites on the tops of hills. And so, when Israel conquered the promised land, God commanded them to destroy every pagan worship site. Don't convert any. Don't go look and go, yeah, but it's a beautiful building. Let's just change the icons or the imagery. No, the Lord said, knock it all down. He said, I don't want you worshiping me that way. They were only allowed to worship God at the tabernacle or, in certain instances, to construct very simple altars that weren't shaped by any tool. The idea was is that the Lord didn't want it to be about the ornateness. Here's the thing. It's so funny because when, when you do church, we all have different preferences, right? And so some people prefer a, more of like the a less of the uh, ornateness or beauty or whatever you want to call it, less of the art of, of worshiping the Lord. And then other people are like all into the art and everything. And, and the truth is, is that the, it, it lies somewhere in the middle. One of the, the things that the law says, the law of Moses says, is that when he was instructing Moses about how to make the garments for the high priest, it mentions that these things were given to him for holiness, but then it also says for beauty, for beauty. Certainly, if you have someone up here that's playing an instrument and they're not very good at it, but that's the only person you have, well, then God loves a joyful noise, right? But if you have the ability to get better and to do that as unto the Lord, that's beauty's not a negative, right? Sometimes you might, we might do something to beautify the building, and somebody's like, oh, we're getting, we're getting too showy, and it's like we're painting. <laughs> like the old paint is chipping and ugly, like it needs to be painted. So it, there's a balance, though, obviously, if that's what it becomes all about, right? Like we're, we're like, well, you know, this is how we're going to draw people in. We're not painting the building to draw people in. We're painting the building because the old paint is ugly. I've digressed. (laughs) Anyway, the idea is it was not to be something that was shaped by human hands. God didn't, when, if they were going to do something, He wanted them to do it His way. And so, the tabernacle was beautiful. The temple was beautiful. But again, it was God's way. It was the way He wanted it done. He didn't want human hands touching worship. And so, when they came in, they were supposed to do this, but of course they didn't for the most part. I mean, they, they destroyed quite a few things, but some of them they, they kept up. And so, unfortunately, many of these pagan worship sites were converted then to worship sites to Jehovah. They weren't worshiping idols. They weren't doing horrible things. They were just worshiping Jehovah in places that He had told them to not do that. And this always displeased the Lord because worship isn't just about singing. It's not just about expression. It's not just about beauty. It's also about holiness. And so, there's always the idea in worship of surrender and submission, right? There's always the idea of surrender and submission, of service. So, when we think of worship, the very nature of the concept of worship means it can't be my way. I want to worship this way. Well, that, that's, then it's not worship anymore. Worship is the yielding, the surrendering of that to the Lord. I have been in so many different 
church environments in the course of my life. And some of them have definitely been preferable from a style of music or a style of service. I'm, as you can see, I'm not a high church guy. I definitely, by nature, don't like the idea of any type of dress or attitude that tends to separate the leadership from the congregation. But I've known some people where the the get up and everything, and they love Jesus, you know, and it's like, okay. And I can go there, and, and you know, and, and maybe the music is different than maybe what I would prefer. I can worship the Lord. Because regardless of those things, it's not about my preference. It's about submission, surrender, honoring Him. And if what we're singing and what we're doing, I can do that, well, then I can worship. So worship is not worship if it's my way. The very nature of what worship means requires it to be His way. And so even though the people were offering sacrifices and prayers to the Lord, instead of idols on these high places, allowing it was a failure on Jehoshaphat's part. Another failure is in verse 44, and this was his big failure. It says, And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now you might be looking at that going, what's wrong about making peace? We talked about that in, in earlier in chapter 22, so I won't go into it a ton this evening. But it's not so much here that the indictment is that he made peace, it's that he, the word here made, it means to maintain or to fulfill to the end. In other words, after Ahab died, even though this was clearly a mistake for him to go to war with Ahab, this was an unjust war, he did not hear from the Lord, the Lord had warned him not to go, and Jehoshaphat still went with him. So that was a mistake. And so the problem isn't so much that he made the mistake. The problem is, is that he decided to keep the promise even after Ahab died and God judged Ahab. He kept his promise after Ahab was dead, maintaining the treaty with Ahab's two sons. It's good to keep your promises. It's not good to make bad promises. It's good to want peaceful relationships with those around you. But it's not good to preserve that peace at the cost of joining with wickedness. It's not. And that was Jehoshaphat's major flaw. Again, we talked about it last week about how going to battle with Ahab almost got him killed, even though he loved the Lord. And so the problem is, is what the writer tells us, is Jehoshaphat didn't learn his lesson that time. In fact, it would take a few more catastrophes before he learned this hard lesson. Now, Jehoshaphat did lots of other good things for the kingdom, but the writer only decides to point out two. It says in verse 45, now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The word there for might, it means his achievements, his victories, all the rest of the acts, including his achievements. Then it mentions how he warred, so his victories in battle. Are they not written in the, uh, lost my spot? Oh, the might that he showed, the achievements that he accomplished, and, the, and how he had victories in battle. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Um, while Second Chronicles does give us a fuller account of Jehoshaphat's reign, in fact, it gives us four chapters worth of information, that's not what the writer's referring to. He's not referring to the book of Chronicles. He's referring to the royal histories that could be read by the exiles still in that day. Uh, records were very important to the Jewish people. Genealogies were very important to the Jewish people. You needed to be able to trace your genealogy. If, in fact, when they came back from the exile, there were some people who claimed to be priests and they couldn't trace their, their, their lineage, and so they were put out of the priesthood. So these things, records were very important to the Jewish people, obviously because they... We don't understand this in our, in our nation, we, in our culture. We don't understand this, okay? If you were from the tribe of Benjamin 
and of the family of so-and-so, that was crucial because the land that God gave to you was tied to that. That was your inheritance, not from a king or not from an elder or not from even an inheritance from a family member. It was your inheritance from God. And so that, the idea there is it was not to be treated as just property or even your possession. It was your inheritance. So these records were very important to the people of Israel. And so what's interesting is that when we look at the book of, of First and Second Kings, remember it's all one book originally, when we look at these two, two books, the guy who wrote it, it's not like he sat down and he's like, I'm going to make a history of the, of the kings of Israel. That's not what his purpose was. That already existed. Anybody could have read that. What his purpose was, was to select certain events from those histories that communicated the message he was trying to teach to the exiles, which was God's faithful. We weren't. That's why we're in exile. But God is. And if we'll turn back to him, he will still be faithful. His character hasn't changed. So that's his goal. And everything's feeding into that. So he says, listen, you want to read the whole story of this guy? Go read the histories. But I want to point out, he says, I want to point out to you guys two things that stuck out to me when I read about this guy's history. And so in verse 46, he gets to the first one. He says, and the remnant of the Sodomites, which remained in the days of his father Asa, he took out of the land. Now, we read about this already when we referenced back to 1 Kings 15 that he, he exiled the uh, Sodomites. There is some debate on whether the word removed actually means he put them to death. There's a specific word usually when it refers to, because to, it was a capital crime. There is a word that usually refers to that. This word is usually used for exile. So it could be either, I don't know which one, either way, whether he dealt with them is the point, that his dad had dealt with the majority of them, but he had left some of them in the land. Now, it's not like he was walking around with some kind of a tester to find out if you were engaging in same-sex uh, behavior. The word here for sodomite, it means uh, male shrine prostitutes, cultic prostitutes, male prostitutes. Deuteronomy 23 is really clear that this is not allowable in the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 and 18, there shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite, nor a ritual male prostitute of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the, the wages of a whore or the price of a, of a dog. That was the, we hear that word whore, it's a detrimental word, it's a negative word, uh, it's not a word you say to somebody in a, in, to compliment them. In the same way, the word dog has been used in the English language throughout history to refer to a, a male prostitute. That was the derogatory term for that. So you don't, not to bring the wages, if you're a, a female or a male prostitute, into the house of the Lord your God for any vow, for even both of these are abomination unto the Lord your God. So these were not acceptable jobs to have. Very often, prostitution back then was associated with idolatry. And so, these were things that were not allowed in Israel. And so, Jehoshaphat took care of that. He said, we're not, you're not going to do that anymore. And if you're an Israeli and you're going to do that, then either you're going to be put to death, which he would have been justified to do because the law of Moses calls it a capital crime, or he would exile them. Either way, he dealt with it. Now, I say this, and I need to bring up a point, because defenders, of, defenders within the culture of church environments today of same-sex or same-gender relationships, same thing to me, I'm just trying to explain. Defenders of same-gender relationships often point out, well, 
the Israeli kings were praised for eradicating cultic prostitution, not same-gender relationships. God's okay with same-gender relationships. The problem with that is, is just because the kings were praised for dealing with eradicating cultic prostitution, that doesn't negate the rest of God's commands in the law. And so, when we look at the law, we have some very clear commands about sexuality that have, and, and gender that have nothing to do with cultic prostitution. If we go to Leviticus chapter 20, I bring this up because if you bump into somebody, they're going to go, that's not talking about same gender sexual sin. Uh, it's talking about, you know, cultic prostitutes. And sometimes Christians are like, oh, I, I'm not trying to say it to insult you. Maybe that's happened to you. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's because we don't know. And what we don't know can get us in trouble uh, because we can be deceived. But in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 17, 10 through 17, we get a long list here, and it has nothing to do with cultural or with cultic prostitution. It says in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits the adultery with his neighbor's wife, and the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And the man that lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. So incest, that type of thing, their blood shall be upon them. If a man lie with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have wrought confusion. Their blood shall be upon them. If, here it is, a man lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man take a wife and her mother, so now we got polygamy, it is wickedness. They shall be burnt with fire, both he and they, there shall, that there be no wickedness among you. Bestiality. And if a man lie with a beast, it shall surely be put to death, and you shall slay the beast." And if a woman approach unto any beast, lie down thereunto, you shall kill the woman and the beast. They shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. And if a man take his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and see her nakedness, and again, that's a term for sex, she, and she see his nakedness, it's a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, he shall bear his iniquity. I mean, it goes on with a few other things. But the idea here is we have a list of adultery, incest, polygamy, bestiality. They're all mentioned alongside same-gender sexual activity. They're all mentioned in the same light. None of these things have any association with cultic prostitution in this chapter. They're wrong as behaviors, not just when they're done in what would be considered an unloving or, or evil way. They're wrong, intrinsically wrong, in relation to how God created sex to be. God's language is clear here. Same-gender sexual activity falls under behavior that is outside God's design for sex, just like the other activities are outside the design of God's, uh, God's design for sex. All of those behaviors, all of those activities, they rebel against God's design for sex, and that's why they're sin. To teach otherwise is to reject God's authority as our Creator and is therefore idolatry. So it's not just the issue of going, well, you're uncomfortable with this thing because it's not your traditional upbringing. No, I am uncomfortable with anything that's outside the boundaries of my Creator. God created us, and therefore He has the right to tell us what's right and what's wrong. I did not create myself. I was designed. I was made to be a certain way. And to reject that, whether it's to reject my gender, or to reject how God designs an intimate sexual relationship to be within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. That is therefore idolatry. Jehoshaphat accepted God's authority as creator in this area. 
And so he led the nation accordingly. He dealt with these guys. Now, the second thing that stuck out to the writer of 1 Kings is Jehoshaphat's willingness to learn the hard lessons that God sought to teach him, his willingness to change. But to get there, to show us his change, the writer has to give us some, give us some context first. So verse 47, 1 Kings 22, it says, there was then no king in Edom, a deputy was king. And Jehoshaphat made ships of Tharshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they didn't go because the ships were broken at Ezion Geber. So the context here is, first off, he tells us the situation in Edom. Uh, he says there was no king in Edom. There was a deputy, which means a stand-in, someone appointed by Jehoshaphat. Now, the exiles in Babylon who are reading this, they're the first recipients of this book, they knew that the Edomites were Judah's bitter enemy. When the people of Judah fled the Babylonian defeat, when they, Jerusalem was conquered and leveled to the ground and tons of people were executed, many of the Israelis living in Judah fled. And one of the places they fled to was the nation of Edom from the Babylonians. Well, when they fled to Edom, the Edomites either slaughtered them or turned them into the Babylonians. But there was a time, they, they were well acquainted with that, but there was a time in Judah's history where they ruled the Edomites. Jehoshaphat was a king who once did. So, he had a, a deputy, a stand-in that was not a true king of Edom, but ruled there, someone he appointed, an Edomite that he appointed that was loyal to him. And because of that, Judah had control of the area. So this gave Jehoshaphat access to the trade routes via the Indian Ocean, because Edom went all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. So, verse 48, Jehoshaphat decided to take advantage of that. He made ships of Tharshish. The word made here, it means to tithe or tax or a tenth. So some suggest he made 10 of these special ships. It's more likely that it's saying that he used tax money to purchase these ships from the Tharshish. Ships from these seafaring people were considered the finest in the world at that time, and so they would be needed for the long trip he was sending on. He was sending them to go to Ophir for gold. Now, most believe that Ophir is located on the southeastern coast of Africa uh, because that's the largest gold-producing region anywhere close to Israel. We don't know for sure. Those are just guesses. If you've ever heard of Solomon's famous mines, that's what people are referring to when they mention that. Of course, most of that's just made-up stuff. But wherever the real mines were, we don't know. But basically, the point is, is that Solomon acquired a ton of wealth from trade with these gold mines, and Jehoshaphat's trying to revive those trade routes. But it tells us he built the ships, but they never went, for the ships were broken at Ezion Geber. Ezion Geber is an Edomite city on the northern point of the Gulf of Aqaba. And the word broken, it means they were crushed or mauled or broken into pieces. The Bible never tells us anywhere how that happened. But it does tell us that it was it happened because it was God's judgment. And so let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 20 real quick, just to read that to get some context. We'll get into more details when we study Second Chronicles in 2074. But in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 35 through 37, it says, and after this did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion-Geber. 
Well, then Eliezer, the son of Dodava of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have joined yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has broken your works. And the ships were broken that they were not able to go to Tharshish. So he's doing this building project, but it's not his building project. It's a joint effort with the wicked king in the north, Ahab's son. And God sends a prophet to him and says, because you've not learned your lesson from joining with Ahab, this venture is going to fail. And the ships were destroyed somehow. So just as God was displeased with, by Jehoshaphat's partnership with Ahab, God was displeased with his partnership with Ahab's sons. And so all that money, all the time that went into building them, all the planning, it was gone. It's a pretty hard lesson to learn, isn't it? These were not cheap things. But God made the lesson hard because Jehoshaphat didn't learn the first lesson, the one that almost cost him his life. For example, we look at the whole battle with Syria. Ahab does die. Jehoshaphat's in danger for a bit. He calls out to the Lord. God rescues him. The very next day, everything's fine. There's no loss. Everything's fine. I'm still alive. Everything's good. Yeah, Ahab died. This was a bad idea. But everything's okay. Judah's in good shape. But this, this was a hard pill to swallow. This one actually cost him something. Generally speaking, when we're displeasing the Lord, God gives us space to repent. I've heard sometimes people, they'll blaspheme the Lord or they'll do something wicked and they'll go, God, you know, strike me dead now for what I've done. And then nothing happens. They go, see, God doesn't care. And I'm like, first off, you don't get to determine when you're supposed to be judged. God's the judge of all the earth. Second off, you are totally mocking the grace and the, and the mercy and the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So when we're displeasing the Lord, God doesn't immediately just bam. He gives us space to repent. But if we don't respond to that graciousness of God, He begins to discipline us. Now, what's the main point of discipline? the Bible tells us. It's instruction. The whole point of discipline is instruction, to teach us to make better choices. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about God's discipline a little bit, and it explains this concept. It says, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, after it's done, after the discipline's over, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto those who are exercised thereby. The word exercised there, it means trained, instructed. You know, in the middle of being disciplined, it's not fun. It's, it's hard. But you learn something from it. That's the point. You're trained through it, and as a result, you can make better choices in the future. As an aside here, if you're a parent and your goal is to punish or shame or make your child pay for their behavior, that is not discipline. That is misusing your authority. That's not our job as parents. It's not even how God deals with us as his kids. The Bible teaches us that vengeance is God's job, not ours. Because unlike God's wrath, our wrath does not produce or bring about God's righteousness. James chapter 1, verse 20, for the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So the goal of parental discipline is instructional. 
I don't discipline because their behavior now annoys me, or it's even because it stirred up my sense of justice. It's not even about making them respect me. The motivation, motivation must be love, and the goal must be to teach them to make better choices, choices that please the Lord. That's the goal, because that's how God disciplines us. We read Hebrews 12, 11 earlier, but if we go back to Hebrews 12 and we read verses 5 through 10, it explains how God deals with us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, <clears throat> he is challenging the believers in, that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews. The writer is, and he's explaining one of the reasons they're struggling is he says this in verse 5 is because you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as just as, like unto children, my son, and then he quotes the Old Testament, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, well, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father does not chasten? You know, God spanks his kids. If you're not ever getting spanked, you need to question if you're his kid. Because he says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are illegitimate. You're not his son. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they are earthly fathers. They verily for a few days chastened us, and they did it as according to their own pleasure, whatever they thought was best. But He, God, He does it for our profit, always. Every time God disciplines us, it's for our profit, for us to benefit from it, that we might be partakers of His holiness. We might learn to make better choices. Now, if I refuse to respond to God's gentler, gentler discipline, He'll turn up the heat. He'll turn up the heat. Because He loves us, He refuses to let us persist in displeasing Him without making every effort to turn us around, even if it means breaking us. And so, may I ask you tonight, has God been disciplining you lately? And if so, how are you responding? Are you angry at God because He's broken your ships? Are you angry at God because He's keeping you from success in ministry or business? If so, that's the wrong response. That was Ahab's response all the time. Every time he would do something and God would come to him and be like, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Maybe he'd be like, I can't do anything right. Nothing ever pleases the Lord. Josephat's like, do you have any other prophets here? And he's like, yeah, he never says anything good about me. He never likes anything I do. He always tells me that it's not going to work. That was Ahab's response. Instead of being like Ahab, receive God's discipline, even though it costs you a lot, be like Jehoshaphat. What do you mean be like Jehoshaphat? Let's go back to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, verse 49. So this whole horrible experience happens in verse 48, where the ships are broken because he was doing it with Ahaziah. Look at what this turkey does. Verse 49, then said Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, hey, let my servants go with your servants in the ships. Oh, what ships? Apparently, after this all happened, Jehoshaphat said, you know what? 
It wasn't that I wanted to go open up trade again that was the problem, it was how I did it. So apparently, he decides to do this on his own this time. I'm not going to involve the king of Israel. We're going to build more ships, but yeah, that means less resources, but you know what? No, it's not going to be a joint venture because he's a wicked king and this displeased the Lord, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, Ahaziah gets word about it. He's like, hey, let, let my servants go with your ships. I mean, you let me help build them, but at least let my guys go. I want in on this trade route. And note what it says, but Jehoshaphat would not. Jehoshaphat finally learned the hard lesson, didn't he? He realized God isn't pleased with these partnerships I'm making with wicked men. So I will continue to seek good trade via these shipping routes for my people, but I'm not going to partner with you anymore, Ahaziah. We're done. We're done. Remember back when Ahab asked Jehoshaphat to go to war with him? I mentioned when we, we, we studied that, that maybe, maybe Jehoshaphat was worried about ruining the new peace between the two nations. Maybe he was worried about the consequences if he said no. I said back then, what he needed to do is trust the Lord with the, with the results and just obey the Lord. Well, this time he does. This time he decides to trust the Lord to take care of him and his people, and that if this decision angered the king of Israel, God would take care of that too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18, it tells us, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't get into partnerships with unbelievers. This is, you know, for what do we have in common with them? Our whole value system is radically different. So don't get into those in- intimate partnerships with unbelievers. But then it comes with a promise at the very end, where he quotes the Old Testament again. He says, but come out from them and be my people. Because if you come out from them, I will be your God and you'll be my people. I'll be enough for you. I'll be everything you need. And what an awesome promise that is from the Lord. It's worth it to trust him. It is. Even if things go badly, if you say no to something and, or you decide not to get involved in something that you know will displease the Lord and you end up upsetting a person, the Lord is not going to forsake you in that. And when you choose Him, it's worth it. It's worth it. Well, Jehoshaphat trusted the Lord this time, and because he learned the hard lesson, he finished well. Verse 50, and Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place, his stead. Now, in contrast to someone who learned the lesson from Ahab, Another king did not learn the hard lesson. Verse 51, and Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And it says he reigned two years over Israel, not a very long reign. Uh, We'll learn why his reign was so short when we start 2 Kings. But it mentions here in verse 52, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. It's interesting, that phrase, in the way, is repeated three times. It's almost like God saying, you had three bad examples to learn from. You had Jeroboam, who I promised everything to, and he walked in his own way, in his own path, and he experienced judgment. You had your dad, who had everything in front of him. I sent multiple prophets to him. I I lavished him with love and guidance, and he rejected it. Look at what happened to him. Your mom, she never responded to anything. Look at what happened to her. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen soon. And he just decided, I'm going right down all three of those roads. I don't care, God. 
I don't care. For it says in verse 53, he served Baal. The word served means he gave his devotion, his worship to Baal. He worshiped him and he provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. He did not learn the lesson. I'm sure that Baal worship existed in some ways after the whole Mount Carmel experience where all the prophets of Baal were killed and fire came down from heaven and so many people in Israel returned to the Lord. I'm sure that Baal worship existed. But after that point, Israelis primarily worshiped in Bethel and in Dan. They worshiped those golden bulls that Jeroboam had set up as his version of Jehovah worship. Didn't That displeased the Lord, but at least it wasn't other gods. So it's not just that Ahaziah kept the status quo when his father died. It's that he reverted back to how his dad started his reign. He didn't learn from any of the lessons that Ahab experienced where Ahab did at least humble himself. If he never got right with the Lord, at least he thought, okay, well, we won't do that anymore. He didn't even learn from that. And so the Bible says he provoked the Lord to anger. That's a heavy phrase. It means to be enraged or vexed. In other words, the point was Ahaziah's behavior required God to take action. God couldn't just let it slide anymore. No doubt Ahaziah had seen his father humble himself, make some changes. Even though he didn't get right with the Lord, he at least made some changes. But instead of learning from that and experiencing God's mercy, like his dad did at times, he behaved in a way that stirred up God's anger to the point where God had to do something about him. Why would Ahaziah do that? Was he angry at God for what happened to his father? Did he think he was better than his father and he had some plan, you know, to evade God's wrath? I don't know. Whatever the reason the writer wants us to know, he didn't learn the hard lessons. When we start 2 Kings, um, not next Sunday because we'll be at the baptism, but the Sunday after that when we start 2 Kings, we will see that the cost for this man was very high. So what's the point? As we wrap up 2 Kings, the point is this. Don't be like Ahaziah. Be like Jehoshaphat. Right? I mean, that's the whole point. He's ending up this section of 1 Kings with. Don't be like Ahaziah. Be like Jehoshaphat. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, I'll leave you with these verses, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll close with a song. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, Peter says this. He says, likewise, and likewise has to do with, he's addressed, he addressed pastors in verses 1 through 4. He says, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives, and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. What Jehoshaphat did at the end was he said, Lord, this might cost me the entire treaty I fought for when I first became king with the, the, the northern tribes. I don't think you want us fighting against our, our brothers and sisters in the north. But Lord, I'm going to cast that care on you. I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do things your way, knowing that you'll take care of me even if that goes bad. And that truth applies to us as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, 
and he'll make your path straight. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we're so grateful that you say, bring it all to me. Lord, we don't have to walk around with all these burdens of what might happen if I do this? We, I know so often we run through the, I know I do at least, I run through the scenarios in my mind. Well, if I do this, this could happen. But Lord, help us, I pray, to, to not be like that. Help me not to be like that. Help us to zero in on what you say, about what you command. And then, Lord, with the promise, knowing that if we'll cast our cares on you, you do care for, about us. You care for us, Lord, to rest in that love that you have for us to learn the lessons from the mistakes, to learn to trust you more so that as we trust you more, we get to walk on those straight paths. Even if there's chaos going around us, we get that, that straight, solid path where our feet are on solid ground because you've got us in your hands. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.